please. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together here this morning. We thank you for your promise of your presence, that we're two or more gathered together, that you would be in our midst. And we believe that and we thank you for it. And we ask for your guidance, your anointing, and for the instruction of the Holy Spirit throughout this meeting, that you would bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that, Lord, that you would affect us all from the word that we hear. And we would be different and changed. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. I'd like to turn to uh, Hebrews 11.6, if you would, just uh, you know what that's all about, don't you? Hebrews 11.6. But without faith it's impossible to please him, God, for, but for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those them that diligently seek him. And so that itself is a promise to us that if we would put effort put ourself into seeking after God and putting Him first, as Matthew 6 says in verse 33, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If we put that as a priority of our life, then there will be a reward that will come out of that. Do you believe that? You can't help but read Hebrews 11 and see how they all received uh, praise for their faith and their commitment to God. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. What I want to look at this morning is, I think, an interesting subject is came to me a week or so ago. I was preparing for last Sunday's teaching, and the word validate came to my mind. And I took that, and I wrote it down, and I started thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more things rushed through my mind, and I began to write things down. And before you know it, I had a sermon outline. Now, John, I mean, you might take a seminary, it might take them 20 or 30 hours, but you need to tell them they need the Holy Spirit. They get to baptism, it'll be a change. Because, I mean, God will give you things that will be different. and You'll get a little faster uh, information from heaven. I mean, it's, it's wired a little differently when you have the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's no argument about that. But I'm going to talk about the validating of your faith. Now, the first thing we have to do with something like that is define. What is validate? What does it mean? Because once you understand that, it brings more understanding to the subject matter. Does anybody here have any concept of what that word means? Well, okay. Noah Webster says in his dictionary, he says, having sufficient strength, founded in truth, it's sound, it's just, and it's something that can be supported. It's not weak or defective, such as a person has a valid reason or a person has a valid argument. I mean, you, sometimes people can reason about something, but you can look and say, that's not a valid reason. You know, you can probably say to your son, why don't you cut the grass? Well, I didn't feel like it. It was too hot. That's not a valid reason. Now, if he said it was raining and the grass was wet and it would just clog a lawnmower up, you might say, okay, that's valid. I understand that. But a lot of times people do have valid reasons, and sometimes they don't. More than not to have, it's not very valid. Or sometimes people have valid objections. I mean, I don't think the Supreme Court has anything valid about which they just came out with about gay marriage. I don't believe it. I believe it's political, and I believe it's just going to make this country worse, and it's going to cause more problems for our society. Because if you think they're going to be happy with that decision, you're wrong. Because the next step they're going to make is going to start forcing people, try to force people to marry them. They're going to be knocking on our doors as well as anybody else's. And they're going to try to get us to do that. 
So it's time to think about that as a church and be ready and prepared for that because it's coming. It's just the next step that these people will take. It goes on talking about this, uh, this or some talking about this word validating, having legal strength or force, something that's executed with proper formalities that cannot be overthrown. So it has the force of the law behind it. It's supported by law or right. Is a valid deed. If you have a deed to your property, then I mean that's something somebody can't come and claim your property. I had somebody one time put a note on my property I'd moved to way back, and they put a note up there, I want you to move. This is not your property. So I went back to the guy that I bought it from. He happened to be a, a real estate lawyer, and he also knew about the deeds and everything else, and he was able to examine that. He just came out there and looked to make sure that the house was set properly on the land. He said, you're okay. He said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I guess he made a phone call or whatever. But they kept calling and trying to harass us. But we see we had a valid deed. There's nothing they could do. He finally hit this uh, lawyer on his own, took her to court, and got a judgment against her to, to tell her to cease and exist from trying to come out there anymore. And the problem was solved. But if I didn't have a valid deed, that wouldn't have worked very well for me. So having something that's valid, something that is supported by law, something that is concrete, just, and good, it's good. So, again, a valid covenant. How many of you are married and have a valid marriage license? All right. Now, I'm hope, hoping not, you, those of you who didn't raise your hand are not without a license. How many of you have a valid driver's license? If a man pulls you over, you'll be able to give him your license. It'll be valid. Now, what if it's not valid? We call it, it's invalid. So the opposite of valid is invalid. It means it's null, it's void. And if it's void and it's null, then that means you are going to be in trouble with the police and the courts. Isn't that true? Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Because if you don't want, you don't want something to be null and void... We could look at the Bible and look at certain people. We could say somebody like Judas, his faith was something that became invalid. Is that right? He's called the son of perdition. That's not a good phrase. And the Bible says a lot about that. And we could say uh, about other people, Balaam's faith became invalid. We could say Demas's faith became invalid. The Bible talks about people who shipwrecked or who erred from the faith. And so their faith became invalid. And so, you know, you, you don't get into heaven, heaven by a valid baptismal certificate. If you think that's going to get you in heaven, then you're, you're really fooling yourself because that's, the only thing that's going to get you in heaven is to have a valid salvation and to have a valid relationship with the Lord. That's the only thing that's going to count at the end. Everything else is going to be null and void. So we could say that Paul had a valid faith. Could we? Second Timothy chapter four. In verse seven, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I've kept the faith. I have fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. That's valid. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. And so we see there, I mean, again, in Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 
We know that he had a valid faith. He stood up against all of the legalists and the Pharisees of the day. He stood his ground. He didn't cower. He didn't, he didn't backpedal. He didn't, he didn't give in. He stood up to them. And from that, he got stoned to death. But you know what? The, the Lord stood up and received him into heaven. So he, he had valid faith. And we could look through all of these people in the Bible and see over and over again that they had valid faith. I mean, Peter was delivered from prison by an angel in Acts chapter uh, 12. We say he had a valid faith. At one time he had, had denied the Lord, but now he was back restored to the Lord, and the Lord was rescuing him from a prison when they were killing a lot of the uh, Christians in that day. So we could say that, that God has a testimony in the Bible of a lot of people have a valid faith. But the question is to us, is do you have a valid faith? Well, can you validate it? Acts 14, verse 22. This is when Paul and Barnabas were going around. They returned to Antioch, and they, were, they thought they were some kind of gods. And they began to... Uh, Praise them, and they said, no, don't do that. And it says in verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lysteria and Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. I think that's interesting because confirming the souls means to, to make something firm, to make more firm, stronger. And behind the word validate is something that has strength, something that is established, and I think this is the closest thing I could find to that word in the Bible, other than the word valiant. The word valiant is also in Hebrews, I think, 11.34, where they wax valiant and fight, because that means strong, strength, force, established. Because people who stand up against the enemy are people who are you would say valid or they're not going to fight. They're going to run. They're going to give in. They're going to cower. So we're, we're caused, God wants to cause us to be more firmer in our faith than we are now because we're, we're ready to face some times that are going to be hard down the road. There's more yet to come. It's not going to get any better, folks. It's going to get worse. I'm not trying to be negative. It's just the facts of the matter. I mean, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13 says it will get worse and worse. Because people be denying the Lord. And I mean, it's all the things we see happening in the country today and the courts getting behind a lot of this stuff, it's, it's something that is alarming to me. And it's, uh, you know, this country is, I think, about $18 trillion in debt. Now, how do you pay for that? If the interest rates start to go up, that means they're going to have to start paying that. They're going to have to borrow money with a 4 or 5% interest rate, and they're going to have to pay that debt off with that, and they're going to make it even worse. So it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And I think we're in for a big crash down the road. I mean, we're like a train out of control going down the road track, and it's just about ready to crash as a country. I mean, those are negative things, but it still means, you know, what are you doing as, as far as your life is concerned and being prepared and being ready? and being Because when the Lord comes back, I mean, he's going to come back for people who have a valid faith. And he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or he will say something else. I mean, can our faith be found invalid? Anybody want to reply to that? Can your, anybody's faith be found invalid? 
Well, let me answer the question for you. Yes, it can. Let me show you some scripture on that. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. There's a whole lot of people here in this context at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says to them, Not everyone saith unto me, just because you say it doesn't make it so. Lord, Lord, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of him, my Father which is in heaven. That's who makes it in. And then he goes on and says, well, Lord, look at, haven't we done many things in thy name, prophesied in thy name, cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works? Now, a whole lot of churches can say that. They can proclaim that or profess that, but that doesn't mean it's true. And then he said, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity. Now, that can happen. And God forbid that it happen to any of us because that's the worst thing a man would ever want to hear. Then uh, you look over Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13. Well, you see this confirmed throughout the Bible. Here in this context, he's talking about being ready, about the wedding garment. And then in verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him out into honored darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. And then in Matthew chapter 24, speaking about the return of the Lord. Matthew 24 and verse 48. Talking about being ready. And then he says here about people that uh, begin to uh, become a little relaxed in their beliefs and their faith. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, which a lot of people do, they begin to say that, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink and to be drunken. And the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, in the hour that he is not aware of, he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. And then it goes right on into the five foolish and five wise virgins. And then there he's talking again about watching and being ready. And then in verse uh, 10, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. So it's all about being prepared and being ready. So these people, though they were a part of a group of people, they were, they were called virgins, they weren't, they weren't validated. They weren't ready. And because of that, God said, Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Now, we don't want that to happen to us, do we? So the question, the big question is this. How can we validate our faith? How can we be sure that our faith is valid? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you can, you can take your pocketbook out or your wallet out and look at your driver's license to be sure it's in date and you know it's valid. You can go home and check your deed to your property if you own one or to your title to your car. You can see if it's valid. But can you also look into the Word and into your heart and your relationship with God and see if it's valid? Yes, I believe you can. If you're careful and cautious about that. So I want to give you some principles about how you can see that your faith is valid. And the first thing is very simple. It's called obedience. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. Because not every Christian who says he's a Christian is a Christian. Just because he says it or professes it doesn't make it true. 
Hebrews 5 and verse 9, speaking about Jesus, learning obedience through the things he suffered. Verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that do what? That obey him. So the big question is, are we walking in obedience to the light that we have? Well, let's ask it another way. I mean, does God's word reveal to us the truth? Response, please. I mean, does God's word reveal to us what he requires of us and what he wants us to do? Show us his will. And then he says, walk in it and do it. Deuteronomy 28, he says, if thou wilt diligently hearken unto the word of the Lord and observe to do according to all that's written there, and then you will be blessed. Doesn't he say that? Now, diligently hearken, and if I said before, it means in listening, listen. Because the word diligent and hearken are both the same Hebrew word. So what are you saying about when you listen, really listen. Pay attention. So if we're not paying attention, then we can miss a whole lot of things. Because God can say something to us we need to hear, and we take it kind of you know lightly, and we don't take it very seriously, and then something comes along, and we don't obey what God tells us to do. So we have to probably examine ourselves in that area. Uh, Hebrews 11.8 speaks of uh, Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into the place which he should after receive for an inheritance, what did he do? It says he obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. Now, how many people would do that, what God required him to do? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and you see him calling him out of Ur Chaldees and telling him to go into the land of promise. And he began to take that journey. But how long did it take him to get there? Quite a while. Quite a while. I mean, he had a few little detours he made and got himself into trouble when he did. But he finally made it into the land because he obeyed God. He went through some trials. He went through some difficulties and hardships. But, you know, there's things God tells us he wants us to do and reveals them to us through the Word. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our life. And you know what we do? We kind of make it light of it. That's not important. That's really not, not necessary. So, again, if God reveals His will to us, what He wants us to do, and it's clear, and it is, there's a lot of simple things in the Bible. So let's take a little quiz, all of you out there. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. Uh-oh. He's going to pick on the women. No, I'm not. I'm going both after both man and woman this morning. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in submission to your own husbands, that they, if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the lifestyle of the wives. So if it's a hard time in your household winning your husband over, maybe it's something in your lifestyle that's not lining up. Now, he's telling us how we're supposed to live. They're supposed to behold your chaste conversation, your lifestyle coupled with fear, and your whose adorning let it be not with the outward adorning of fixing up of the hair and the wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. Now that's something God places value on. So are you women out there who are married, are you in submission to your husband as God's requiring you to be? I didn't say it's always easy, but I said are you in submission to them? Because God requires it. And this is not something for a man or the husband to take and to hold it over his wife's head and say, you're supposed to submit to me. Well, that means that you're not in a very good uh, relationship with God either. But the point of it is here, we're looking at this. Are we obeying this? Are you women obeying it? Because it validates your faith when you begin to live that kind of way. 
I mean, you read on and you see it goes on down and says in verse uh, 6, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. But then he goes and he says, Likewise, you husbands. So he doesn't leave the husbands out of this. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with him according to knowledge. Give an honor unto the wife and unto, as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So you are, as a husband, you're supposed to look at your wife and show honor to her and respect to her. She's a weaker vessel. And she's an heir of life just as much as you are. She's got a right to everything, the kingdom of God, that you have a right to. You're not exclusive in this. And so you have a responsibility there too. So the question to us right here is to answer this. Are we obeying these things? Are we living this Christian life in a manner that the Bible speaks of? Because you know what? Our life is a testimony, is it not? Because people see how we live. They watch us. They observe us. And what they see tells them something about who you are, the kind of character you have, and whether or not you are who you say you are. So, I mean, you look at that. Look at Titus chapter 2. I mean, there's a whole lot of things in Scripture that tells us that how God wants us to live. Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking about speaking of the things which become sound doctrine. Verse 2, that the aged men be sober, speaking to the men, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. So you ask yourself a question, am, am I reflecting those characteristics? Then the aged women. Likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, that's getting a little harder here on us. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing myself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. In other words, they can't have anything to say about you that's evil. When they look at your life, they, they, they see something that's different. And then he goes on talking about servants being obedient to their own masters. I mean, because it's all here about your testimony about walking in a, a way that God requires of us. This is not an option to us. This is a command to us. This is the way God wants us to live. We don't get to select this and this and choose it like a cafeteria. Well, I want this. I don't want that. We look at some things. Well, I don't like, I don't like the, uh, the peas. I don't like onions. And we kind of pick them out and push them aside. We do the same thing with the Word of God. Now, admit it. That's what we do. We push them aside. I don't want it. Just like a picky child goes through the... the uh, the table and looks at the food and says, I don't like that. He starts to whine about it. Well, you know what? A whole lot of people who call themselves Christians whine about what God says. And you know what? It creates a problem in their life as far as validating their faith because they say they are believers. They say they go to church. They say all these things. But yet when it comes down to their lifestyle, it's a contradiction. It's not validated. It's no different than having an invalid driver's license or invalid deed. It's no different whatsoever. Because we're talking about the most important thing in all of life, and that is having a valid salvation, something that God approves of. God looks down and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He won't have to cast us out or appoint us our portion with the hypocrites, because that can happen. 
We've already proven that. So, I mean, do you always treat your wife with respect? Do you always submit to your husband? It might be hard saying always. I'm not saying if he asks you to do something, it's not in Scripture because it's an art to obey God rather than man. But what could your husband possibly tell you to do that you would say I ought to obey God rather than man? That would be a little uh, argument might come out of that. Of course, if there's something he asks you to do, he says, let's go gamble. I mean, you would say, I'm not going to do that. God doesn't want me to do that. And other moral issues could come up. But the point of it is, do we do that? Because that shows obedience in our life. Do you attend church or do you make excuses why you don't have to attend? I've seen over my course of 40 years pastoring, I've probably heard of every excuse that could be made. And some of them are invalid. People say, well, I just had to work overtime. And I understand that sometimes. I think there can be exceptions to the rule. But people use that a lot of times. Well, I just had to finish up a job. So that's more valid than coming to church? Well, you think about it. So, I mean, do you give faithfully? Now, that's one that got everybody real quiet. Y'all getting a little too quiet for me here. You might get me down there coming around saying something a little closer to you. I mean, do you give regularly? If God prospers you, are you not supposed to give back to Him? Cast your bread upon the water, it will come back to you. You know, if you sow sparingly, what happens? You reap sparingly. You ever see a farmer go out there just taking all of his corn seeds or whatever he's got and go out on the sidewalk and throw it out on the sidewalk? He doesn't do that. He's very careful where he picks to plant that. He plows the field, prepares it, gets it ready, and then he puts the corn or whatever it is, the wheat, the barley, he puts it in a row. When you come by later on, have that field you saw plowed up, you see all of these corn stalks coming up, all this wheat coming up. You see the, you see the growth. And it's a bunch of stuff. It's a bumper crop from just a little seed. And the same thing is true with you giving to the Lord. Because if you give sparingly, you also will reap sparingly. Because God loves what? It says a cheerful giver. You know what that word says in the, in the Greek? Hilarious. So the next time you give, you get back in and start laughing. Somebody says, what are you laughing at? I say, I'm giving some money. The Lord blessed me this week. They probably think you're crazy. Well, I've been accused of that too, but that's okay. And so do you always uh, give the Lord your first fruits? Do you witness regularly of your faith? I mean, getting involved, because you know what? You're not just a spectator here. This is a church that's supposed to be participating in the things of the Lord. And if you're a part of what God is doing, then you are involved. And so when you go out there, you're involved in, in testifying and telling people about the Lord, inviting them to church, maybe inviting them to a picnic or inviting them over to your house, trying to witness to them. I mean, that's part of what we're supposed to do, aren't we? I mean, look at the early church in the book of Acts, how they met together daily and how the witness spread all the way through because that's why they gave them the Holy Spirit so that they could have power to witness. How many of us have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Where's the power? Where's the witness in that? It's not like we don't have what we need. It's just like we're not using what God has given us. Now, if we don't use it, then we'll lose it. That's what happens. Because if God has given us something and we just settle over on the shelf over here, it's just going to sit there and decay. 
So it's something we are to be using regularly. I mean, confessing your faith. I mean, the Bible talks about that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Whosoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Is that a validation? It is. Who's validating your faith there? Well, the Son of God is, right before the Father, because you confessed him for, before other people. I mean, when you go out to, to a meal, do you, are you ashamed to bow your head and pray? Because the people watch you. Again, that's just part of your acknowledging the Lord before all the men. You don't have to raise your hand and say, hey, but I'm going to pray. Y'all be quiet. Just do it discreetly, but you do it, and people will notice you. I've had people come up to us over the years and say it's nice to see somebody praying for their meal because they're Christian too. And that's a good thing because that's a testimony. That itself is just a little seed that's sown right there. If nothing else, it might be uh, encouraging their faith or it might cause other people to want more. And that's what we're supposed to do is make people hungry and thirsty. Are you abiding in the vine? John 15. You're familiar with that parable in John 15. And Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And what is he asking of us to do as the branches? To bear fruit. So if you have a fruit tree or a grapevine, you know what it does. And you have to prune it back every year because you want it to produce more. And that's what he says. He says, I, want it, I, I will prune it. Why? So you will produce more. Because God is, in one sense, in this, when you look at this, you see God is a little demanding about these things. Because he's not satisfied with just a little bit. Now, some bring forth 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But God wants us to bring forth a hundredfold, I think. We are to strive for that. We are not to be satisfied with 30. Just a little bit. See, we get satisfied or content with things that we should not be content with, and then we're not doing the will of God. And then we say, well, I, I, I've done a little bit. A little bit's not enough because you're not putting your whole heart into it. That's what God wants out of us. So Luke chapter 12 is telling us about being ready for the Lord's coming. If you'll turn there, please. Luke chapter 12. Verse 37 is, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watch. And verily I say unto you that he will gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And talking about different things about his coming. Verse 40, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Verse 42, when he said, Peter asked him, Is the Lord speakest thou his parable unto us or even to all? And he said, The Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them the portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find him doing what? So doing. So the Lord wants to see you doing something when he returns. Of a truth, I say unto you that he will make him a ruler over all that he hath. But even if that servant saith in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maids and eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he's not aware, and cut him asunder, and will point him his portion with the unbelievers. Now listen to this part, because this goes into how God will judge us. Now God judges us according to the light that we have. To whom is much giving is much required. Do you all hear that? 
applies to you over here, applies to all you here, and all you here, and all you there. Nobody's exempt from that. If God has given you a lot and He requires a lot out of you, that's fair enough. Okay, you acknowledge that? But the question is, are you really applying that to your life as much as He's giving you? Let's read on. Verse 47, And that servant which knew his Lord's will, so he knows the Lord's will, it's not like he's in the dark about it, prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So there's a, a degrees of punishment. But he that knoweth not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom much men have quitted much of him shall they ask the more. Now, this is again much given, much required. How much have you been given as far as the knowledge of God is concerned? How much of the will of God do you know about certain things? I would say as long as you've been here, a lot then how much of that are you applying to your life as the Holy Spirit leads you? Because that's what you have to do. If you're not doing it, I mean, you know, just raising your children, taking care of your family, providing for your your children. I mean, God requires this of all of us, folks. We can't get by this. And so we have been given much. And like Luke 6.46 says, he says, Why, why do you call me Lord? And don't do those things which I say. Now that's pretty uh, frightening to think about that. It's an amazing statement because I think he's really challenging the mediocrity of their commitment. And I think a lot of people in church can be mediocre. Lukewarm. Just not really have the zeal of the Lord in their life. I've got to be sure that I'm doing these things I know to do. I mean, how many of you, when you get your paycheck, put the paycheck in the bank so you can be, go home and be sure you pay your bills? You just don't throw it away and go out and just say, I'm, I'm going to go out and waste some of this money. I need some things. No, the first thing that comes to your mind, i got bills to pay. That's the first thing you're going to do because that's required of you. It's required of you to take care of your children, buy groceries for your family. That's required of you. But if you're really not diligent to do those things, then you're going to find yourself in trouble. Because God's going to require it of you. And I think we need to take it a little more seriously in our life. So, I mean, don't call him Lord and you don't do the things he said because I think that is, that's hypocrisy. Now, James 2 tells us in verse 14, any man says he has faith and has not works, his faith is what? You don't know James chapter 2? Any man says he has faith and does not have faith, his faith is what? What's it say? All right, now I'm going to make you turn there because you don't know it. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What does it profit, my brother, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? Well, the obvious question, answer to that question is no. He gives an example. If a brother or sister be naked of destitute of daily food, and one of you say, Depart, be in peace, warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them no, not those things that are needful to the body, what does it profit you? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being alone. So faith must have what we call corresponding action. This goes along. I mean, faith is inseparably related to obedience. The word faith itself means persuaded to the point of action or obedience. The word faith, F-A-I-T-H. It's the word, it's uh, the verb form is pistuo, the noun is pistis. 
It simply means you've been persuaded of something that is right to do, so therefore you will go do it. Do you believe it's right to correct your children? Okay, if they sash you, what are you going to do? Are you going to be persuaded to the point you need to spank them? Or correct them in some way? That they need a punishment? Sure you will. Well, this is what God requires of us, the same thing. This applies all the way down the road because when they look over in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 because a lot of people say, well, faith works by love, brother. we got to have love. Okay, you lovers, let me tell you what it says here. 1 John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and then shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So you can say you have love, but that doesn't mean you do. My little children, let us not love in word, which a lot of people do, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him or validate our hearts. I mean, there's something here about we're validating ourselves. We're showing that we really do have a real, genuine, valid faith. That it's something that is authentic. It's not something that's just pretense. It's not something we're just putting on, but it's something that's real. Yet so much of that today is not real. And this shows us here how important it is. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. You go back and read that at your leisure this afternoon, if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you read through this, beginning in verse 4, Abel offered, verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated, and then Noah, they had mourned of God of things not seen yet, moved with fear. Abraham, when he was called, he went out, he sojourned. Faith also, uh, Sarah also herself received uh Herself received strength to conceive seed because she judged him faithfully promised. And you read through here, what do you notice very clearly about faith in Hebrews 11? They all did something. They all acted on their faith. These people were not just professors of faith. Certainly they did that. It says in verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them and embraced them, confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But he goes on talking about all of them. You go down and you read about all these people in here. You read, you know, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, Moses. You see, every one of them did something. They acted on what God had revealed to them. I don't know that everybody is doing that. I believe it becomes a little easy to become tolerant or compromise and not really apply what we know is right. And therefore, your faith is not what it should be as far as God is concerned. And so, I mean, faith is inseparably related to obedience, and obedience and faith go together. Do you know that? Do you agree with that? Okay. Secondly, not only obedience, but secondly, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. This is the validation of your faith. Now, we're very familiar with this. We've heard a lot about it over the years. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, or the lawless? And what communion hath light with darkness? 
they're opposites. What agreement hath Christ with the devil? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, an unbeliever? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, here comes the hard part a lot of people want to argue about. Wherefore, come out from among them, be you separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. So the next thing I want to say, secondly, is separation. God wants us to, to apply separation from the people that are not Christian, people that are not like they're supposed to be, or people even profess that they know God. Because remember 2 Timothy 3, 5 says they have a form of godliness, but have, they deny the power of God. From such, turn away. Now there's where you get a lot of grief sometimes because people start saying, where's your love? Well, I want to know where your faith is. That's what I'm interested in this morning. Where's your faith in? But to separate here, when you begin to look at it, it means to separate from or cast out of society. That's what the meaning of the word is. It's very closely related to holiness. Because you go back and you study the word holy, you know it means to be separate. We're called out to be separate from sin, to be set, set apart to God. Set apart from sin, set apart to God. So that's being separate. If we're dedicated to that part. So it also means to mark off by boundaries from others, to limit and to separate. In a good sense, it's used to set apart from some, for some purpose. So you're set apart to God for a purpose. And then it goes on. It's used in Matthew 13, 49. This word, the same Greek word is used there, to sever. It's used in Matthew 25, verse 32, to divide the sheep from the goats. And in Matthew 13, it's used there to sever the wicked from the just. So God doesn't want us mingling together with that which is unclean. It's obvious when you look at it. So it's closely related to holiness and coming apart. So there's more to this than we practice and that we see. That's what I see very clearly today more than ever. There's so much here that's just not practiced or not seen by a lot of Christians. You know, the Amish believe very, very largely in being separate from this world to the point that they dress differently, that they... You know how it is. You know the Amish community. I mean, they're really set apart. They don't drive any cars. and I mean, they, buy, they go to extremes, but that's where they believe. At least they practice what they believe, no matter how hard it is. And you know what? When day of things get hard, people are going to start knocking on their doors saying, we need some food because they have a lot stored up. But they believe in being separate. They dress differently. They don't mingle with the English. This is the term that's used. You know, why don't they mingle with the English? Because they know to get close to people of the world that they'll start dressing like them, looking like them, acting like them, talking like them, drinking like them, smoking like them, partying like them, and having sex like them. That's what they know. And so the reason they are separate is because they're trying to avoid the temptation because they know it's real. And it's a serious thing. But you know what? We don't separate ourselves like that. And not that we have to be like the Amish, but there are some things, maybe the people that you ought to separate from. And this is where you find out a lot of people get really mad at you because you separate yourself from somebody, maybe within the church, that is carnal, somebody that is not living the Christian life, that is pulling you down. They want to know why you won't associate with them. They want to know why you won't go with them to somewhere, to a place. 
Because you know what? You ought to be strong enough to answer them. Say, the reason I don't is because you're smoking all the time or you're telling dirty jokes all the time or you're trying to go to parties. I don't want to be around that. Is there something wrong with that? I'd like for you to tell me what is wrong with that. If God commands us to do something and we do what God commands, is there something wrong with that? Nobody has an answer? There's nothing wrong with that, folks. And this is where people, I mean, sometimes when you, sinners within the church, believe it or not, that people separate from, the parents get upset over that and say, well, no, you shouldn't do that. Oh, really? So then you're, you're the one now is telling us how to, to live the Christian life according to your rules. You know what? You need to have your eyes opened up and quit trying to protect your children. And if somebody separated them from somebody that's in your family, maybe you ought to go to them and ask them why. Have enough courage to ask them. Say, I notice you have not fellowshiping no more with my son my daughter. Is there something wrong? And you ought to have enough courage to give them an honest answer. Because if you're a Christian, you'll do that. Say, well, I, may, uh, I hate to have to say this to you, but last time I went out with your son, he drank beer and smoked cigarettes and tried to entice me to do it. So I said no. Well, you wanted to go to some movie that wasn't very good. You say, that's going to cause a problem. Well, you know what? Let it cause a problem. Because let me ask you a question. Who do you want to cause the most problem with? A parent or God? Because did you ever stop to think about it? You're offending God, folks, by not doing what He says. Because God requires that you do certain things sometimes that might be hard to do, but nonetheless, God requires it. To whom is much given is much required. And sometimes we don't like that. We say there might be less people around. Well, that might be true, but then, then you know, you know, in the Amish community, the, the children come to a certain age, they're given an opportunity to go out into the world, and they're given a choice to decide, do you want to be a part of the church? I'm not saying that that's right, but this is the way they work it, or not. You know, they go out into the world, and they get out there, and a lot of them get snared. A lot of them get pulled away. They don't come back. But of course, some come back and say, that's not my world. It's exactly what Second Corinthians is saying. Exactly what Romans chapter 12 is saying, if you'll turn there. Romans chapter 12. We don't, we don't practice this as we should, or we don't see it clearly as we should. We're scared of something. There's something deep down inside of us that, you know, wants to tolerate things. That's why people today in a lot of Christian churches, quote-unquote, have begun to accept homosexuality. They're beginning to accept it. And there will be more of that happening over the years because the pressure's on now. And the more people accept it, the more people begin to tolerate it, and then people won't say nothing. Nobody stands up. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your most reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Now, isn't that interesting? That means to be fashioned alike. But be you transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may test what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So you're given an opportunity to put something to test to see if it is the will of God. If it's good, acceptable, and perfect. Or if it's not. And so a lot of times we get into the world and we start fashioning ourselves like it. I mean, look at, look at a lot of Christians in church today. They dress like the world. They talk like the world. They act like the world. They've got an attitude like the world. You say, actually, they live like the world. 
In other words, they're worldly. You know what the Bible says in Galatians 1? That Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil world. So mark this in your mind. This world is evil. You understand that? It's evil. It started in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of Adam and Eve. It's an evil world. We live in that evil world. But we don't have to give in to it. We have the power to overcome it, the authority to overcome it. And so again, our separation becomes very important. In Luke chapter 15, you read about the, the prodigal son. The man had two sons, and the one who came to him, prodigal, the prodigal son, the prodigal simply means wasted. So this one son came to him, give him my inheritance. And what did he do with it? Went out into the world. And it says, you read along, you get near the end of it, it says he wasted it with harlots. Now that's pretty, pretty bad, folks. How many people are wasting things with pornography or out having fornicating in this world? Having illicit sexual relationships? How many people are involved in that kind of thing? And then they come to church on Sunday and everything's smoothed over for them, they think. But they're deceiving themselves to think that because God is going to require it of them. And so you see the results of the prodigal son, what happened to him. He didn't do too good, did he? No, he didn't. You look at the difference between the private school and the public school. I mean, take a, just a little bird's eye view. Have any of you ever been to a private school? On one hand, I see. That's all. But there's another one. Okay, then you know something about a private school is a little more stricter, is it not? See, I, I was brought up in a Catholic school. I mean, I went there from kindergarten to the fifth grade until and my mother died, and then we moved up north to be closer to my father's business, and I went to a, a public school there. Then I came back and went back to the to Catholic school in the eighth grade. Now, after the eighth grade, when I graduated from there, I went to a public school. I never got into trouble until I got into the public school because the Catholic school, you didn't get away with anything. I mean, you, you know, these nuns, they're very strict. You do something wrong, they say, well, stick your hand out. and They, may, they, they don't want it out like this. They can stick your hand out like it with the knuckles up. They're going to take a ruler and hit your hand. You say, they're cruel. Well, I think they're very strict, and it hurts, yes. But they'll make you stand up in a corner. They take, they'll take you over to the convent and make you wash the windows and rake the leaves and work. I ended up over there a lot. I think I spent more of my time there than I did at home. Because I got in trouble a lot. But you know what? It did me good. Because I feared them. I had respect for them. But when I got into the public school system, I mean, you know, just the, the public system is corrupted. Look what's happened over the years. I mean, I can remember a time when there used to be certain disciplines, but now there's none. You read stories about kids beating up the, the teachers. That's not supposed to be so. They curse them out. And the parents back them up, point their finger at them, take them to court. So what's happening? Is there a breakdown within our culture today? Absolutely. And where is the problem at? It goes all the way back to the home, to the mother and the father. They're not bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They don't want to be separate. They want their children to be like the world. So they start dressing them like a little Barbie doll when they were three years old. And they, then, they learn to, to grow up and to be, you know, sexy and all this other stuff. And they begin to show off their body. And they begin to date at a very young age. And before you know it, trouble comes into the home. And they wonder, what in the world's happened? 
You are at fault. You are a part of it. You played a part in that. You allowed that to take place. You ingrained that into their mind. You taught them that. And you allowed them to go out there and do that. You gave them what they wanted. You had no structure in that home. There was no discipline or strictness about it. I'm not saying that you have to be overly strict, but there has to be a certain form of strictness within the home. You just don't get away with things, folks. Children should not get away with things. Because when you do that, all you're doing is creating a serious problem. So you look at those things and you look at the separation that God requires. And the reason that private schools are so successful is because they're separate from the public system. And you look at the public system and see how corrupted it's becoming. I'll tell you something about the government and how corrupted it is. Now turn over to Second Timothy chapter 2, I mean Titus chapter 2. So we've seen obedience and we've seen separation. I think these things validate our faith. But, you know, only you can answer these questions in your own heart. Am I too worldly? Am I too much a part of the world? Am I giving in? Am I compromising? Am I accepting the world's standards over God's standards? I mean, what's more important, God's standards or the world? We know it's God's. I'll answer it for you. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. And what does it do? It's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So I want you to look at the two things, denying ungodliness and living godly in this present world, godliness and ungodliness. Because I think a third thing that shows that we have a valid faith is our godliness. This just simply means a person who has piety, a person who's devoted and respects the Lord, lives a separated life, as we've already talked about. He's devoted to God. He reveres God. He cares about what God says, and he's serious about it. And so the word godly is Eusebius, which means devout. It's a person who renders to God due reverence. He respects God. And you don't do that, you're not a part of what God is doing. Jude chapter 1, the only one chapter, but we say that because that's where we're going. Jude chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. It clearly here marks the difference between the godly and the ungodly. Jude 1 and verse 10. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but when they what what they know naturally is brute beast and these those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain have reigned greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. When they, we know all of those particular characters were corrupt. These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about with winds, trees whose fruit withered without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves, waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom there is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Then verse 15 says to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, have a men's person in moderation because of advantage. So here it speaks about ungodly several times in verse 15. The ungodly. 
These are people we could keep away from. We're to stay separate from them. We're not to be associating with them or being around them. We should stand up to them. So again in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, it tells us about, in the context of 2 Timothy 3, it's talking about the last days being perilous times, which the word perilous is the same word used of the Gadarene demoniac, fierce. And we're living in fierce times. It really is. I mean, that's a true picture. It's like a demonic age that we're living in. And he says there, you know, that we are to, in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. So they deny the power of God to set people free. Now, who does that apply to? In your mind. Think about it. Who does it apply to? Most of society. They don't want to be free from any vices or anything that's in their life that strongholds, that binds them. They want to continue in their alcohol, their smoking, their drugs, their fornication, their illicit behavior, their blasphemy against God. They want to continue in that direction. They don't want to be people who are separate, who live godly whatsoever. I mean, First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. You're telling us here about prayer, praying for authority. Now, I believe this. I believe God is for good government. Do you hear what I said? God is for good government. Right here from Scripture. He's telling here the prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks made for all men. Who? For kings. For all that are in authority. Who does that include? Supreme Court, senators, congressmen, president, his cabinet. All those people that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life, live life in all godliness and honestly, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So that tells me God is good for good for good government. We don't have to get involved with it because I think government is corrupted, but we need to be careful to pray for it because God wants us to do that. I mean, that's what makes a difference for us. And again, in First Timothy chapter four. In verse 6 and following. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. So you're supposed to be people who exercise yourself towards godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness profiteth unto all things, having a promise of life that now is, and of that which is to come. So it has something now that gives us benefit now, as well as eternity. It's not something that's it, it's, it's, it's detrimental to us. It's good for us. Because he says that right there very clearly. So again, we're supposed to avoid and separate ourselves from all these people. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Talking about the end time when the Lord comes and judges the earth. Because he goes on in verse 12, says, Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens, new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you 
Look for such things. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So who's he coming back for? He's coming back for the holy, for people who are godly. He's not coming back for the ungodly. In Second Chronicles chapter 19, this is where Jehoshaphat got himself into trouble. He was a good king. But here the uh, a seer named Hananiah came to him, verse 2, came to Jehoshaphat, and he said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. So helping the ungodly. Now who are the ungodly? They're the wicked. People who hate God. Now let's bring it down into our today's language. Okay? They're the homosexuals. They're the feminists. Abortionists. Blasphemies. That's who the ungodly are, folks. And we shouldn't be around them. Doesn't it say in Psalms 1 and verse 1, Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, sitteth in the seat of the scornful, and standeth in the way of the sinner. I mean, that's telling us again, keep away from those things, because they'll have harm to you. They'll bring you down. They will have a negative effect upon your life. And so these are people we need to keep away. I mean, I think it's sinful to be neutral with evil. And that's what people are doing today. It's a neutral thing. You look at the polls today, and most people are beginning to accept homosexuality. I'm not. If you start accepting it, then it's going to begin to be acceptable in this church too. If you begin to allow that, that'll happen. All it takes is one and start spreading it. You start accepting those things into your family, and your children start accepting it in school because they're taught that in school to accept people. And I'm not saying that we are to be hateful, but the Bible tells us, in the Bible, it tells us very clearly, you that uh, love the Lord hate evil. So if something is evil, we're supposed to have a disdain for it. We're not supposed to cuddle up to it, embrace it, and tolerate it, and accept it. They say, well, you are to shake hands with this person and accept them. I say, well, I accept them as a, as a person, but I don't have to accept them into my fellowship or relationship. I don't have to accept them into my home. So no, well, you expelled from school. Bye. That'd be one good way to get out of school if you wanted to get out of school. Well, that's, I mean, it's just the way it is. Proverbs eight thirteen: the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So where is the fear of the Lord at? Because we're starting to accept these things, then we're not showing any hate for them whatsoever. I mean, is it wrong to hate evil? Because I've already said, you know, it's sinful to be neutral with evil. And by that I mean when you get neutral, you just put it, you put your whole mind and life and your spirituality in neutral and you're accepting what they're saying out there about homosexuality, abortion, feminist, all the liberals. You're accepting everything they're saying because you don't want to get into any fight or argument. And I don't want to get into any fight either, but we still are in a warfare that we are fighting, spiritually speaking. And we have to engage in that whether we want to or not because that's going to be where it's going to make who we really are. And then lastly, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul mentioned uh, the warfare earlier. Let's conclude with this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now remember the word validate means to something that's based on a strong belief of something. 
strong in the Lord, the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you might be able or enabled or empowered to stand against the wiles of the devil. So I want to say here that we're standing against the enemy. Standing by faith against the enemy. Now, what does it mean to stand against the enemy? It means you just put up, you put your feet in the ground and you stand there with your weapons and you don't back down. You fight. And I'm talking about physical warfare. But he says in the next verse, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand. There it is again. In the evil day and having done all, to stand. So he's mentioned this several times. Then he says again, Stand therefore, having your lines girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. So several times he mentions standing. This word is histamine, which means to cause to stand firm. I don't see many firm Christians anymore. I, th- I see they're too just wishy-washy. Well, I don't know, you know. I don't want to say anything about that. I don't want to start no trouble. <laughs> well, it seemed like to me when you read the book of Acts, everywhere they went, they stirred up trouble because they preached the truth. And the Bible still says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you want people free, you got to preach them the truth. You can't say, I don't know. The reason people aren't getting free because nobody's telling them the truth. People are accepting that, you know, this is an alternative lifestyle, such as the homosexuality thing. Even the Supreme Court now is saying it is a civil right. It's not a God-given right. So where do we stand? That's a big question. Because all this is about a validating of our faith. And we can't have a valid faith if we just sit down and sit back and do nothing. We have to stand up. Because all it takes is one person to stand, and when you do, then other people begin to join the ranks. I remember reading way back a long time ago about the Roman Roman army. They were a fierce people to fight. And when they when they'd go out to conquer lands, they would send out their people, and they would they would form a group of people like a spear. It stood in rank, and they just all moved as one. Can you imagine that? I mean, how disciplined they had to be to move the way. So when a man was going to this direction, everybody went that direction. And they went right into the people that way. And if somebody on the front row died, somebody just stepped up and took the place. You know what? They defeated people. They could take. They took only maybe a couple thousand of those people to knock out 100,000. Because they stood their ground. They were willing to die for what they believed. They were willing to fight. And that's how strong and powerful they were. I mean, if you think about us as Christians. If we stood together like that and they all started coming against us and they started calling us. I mean, if you know, if, you, if you're ever convicted of it or anything, let it be convicted that you believe God. You're guilty of that. But I think in the end it's going to be us. There's going to be a lot of people that are not going to be found guilty of believing in God. They're going to not believe at all. And so like it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Stand fast. Quit you like men. It means persevere. Be strong in the power of His might. We're not fighting this thing on our own. We're in a wrestling match. You know what a wrestling match is? Close quartered fighting. Have you ever wrestled as a child or a kid? Come on. Somebody needs to set a fire under y'all's seat. Well, I, I've, I've been in that stuff. I, I was in fights. I was in wrestling. Different things. I mean, and you know, it's close quarters. You find yourself really close to somebody. 
And you realize here that the end times we're going to have this demonic flood coming down. Revelation chapter 12 says the devil's come down because he knows his time is short. And he's thrown out of heaven. He's cast down to earth. And he begins to come against the church. And that's what we're going to see in the last days. Let me just close with that. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael, a warring angel. And his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon, which is the devil, was cast out. The old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now that means something, folks. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength from the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused him before God day and night. And then they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and loved not their lives unto the death. Now that's what I'm talking about. Are we that committed that we can form an army that moves in one accord, whatever way God makes us move? that we stand our ground, that we don't back down, that we don't cave in, that we don't give up. Because it says here that they love not their lives unto death. So what is he saying here when he says he overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony? They're saying here that they testified to what the word says that the blood of Jesus did for them. So take your time to go through the word and find out everywhere it says what the blood of Jesus did for you and testify to it. Because remember Romans chapter 4 where he says he washed us with his blood. Deliver us from the wrath of God. I mean, you can, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by His blood. I mean, those are things that are, that's what our testimony is. That's the only weapon we got. I mean, that other than Ephesians 6, the blood is a weapon too. It's just as much as a weapon as anything else. And the devil hates that. I mean, look at the churches that they have taken the blood songs out of their hymnals. They detest it. They're becoming politically correct. In other words, they're becoming compromised. They're tolerant. They're accepting all the pressure that's coming from the world and from political correctness. It's pressure on the church now to conform to the world, and they're doing it. And if you're in that kind of system, you'll conform to it. Read on in Revelation, you find out it's a harlot church. There's a true church, which has been espoused to Christ, and there's a harlot church. And there's going to be a battle between the two as well as anything else. If you want your faith validated, I would say I'd look back and examine yourself right here. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Prove your own selves, whether you are in the faith, lest you be reprobates. Now, we don't want to be that, do we? No. So then you have to take a little time to examine yourself and say, you know what? I've looked at my, my, my faith and I've examined it and I think it's valid. You better be, be more and think though. You better really believe it because that's what it has to be. It has to be something you know in your heart. Approved of by God. Because that's the end, folks. When God approves of you, you don't need anybody else's approval. And you know what everybody out there is looking for today? Approval. But all we need is God's approval. That's it. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But if we, with our faith, exercise it as God tells us to, then He approves of that, and that validates our faith. Would you please bow your hearts with me? Father, we thank You for this day, for this time together as Your people. 
We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in us, to will and do of your good pleasure, and give us the grace that we need to work it out with fear and trembling, especially in these days in which we live. Cause us to be strong in the power of your might. Cause us to take up the armor and to stand strong, to stand firm, to be unmoved in the faith, knowing that you are for us and not against us, but knowing that we fight a strong and fierce enemy that will stop at nothing to try to overthrow us, but that we will be willing to give our lives for our beliefs and to stand our ground and fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life, as Paul said. And that will be the final validation of our faith. And we thank you for, Lord, the good work that you've started. And we believe that, Lord, as Philippians 1 says, he which begun a good work in you, he will complete it unto that day of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We pray here, Lord, for this church, asking you to continue to teach your people, to keep them of one heart and one mind and one spirit, and cause them to grow, grow in your grace and your knowledge and your will to be able to continue to lead these, your people. We pray for all of the families in the church that they would continue to raise their children in a godly fashion, to honor their parents, and that they would not provoke their children to wrath. And we pray, Lord God, that you would continue to keep Bonnie and bless her and prosper her and comfort her. We pray also for, for Paul and his family, that, Lord, you would continue to bless him and guide him and direct him, as well as the other men in this church who are in any leadership position, that you would continue, Lord God, to reveal your known will to them, that your purpose can be fulfilled in Jesus' name.